Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly no- news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading we're recording today which is Thursday, November 4th, 2021. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky coming you coming to you from bookbriot.com. Feels like it's been a did we record this show together last week? We had a couple off and I can't we remember did. We now recording other podcasts. Adaptation <laughs> Nation has started up. There are various permutations there. We did Can record a podcast some, okay. last week. All right, it just so feels like a million years have passed. Yeah, yeah. We're back in. Uh, I guess speaking of, I think we're going to drop it into this feed sometime soon. Maybe it's there already by the time you hear this. The first episode of Adaptation Nation in which Jen Northington, Amanda Nelson, and I take on Dune. We talk about the book. We talk about the movie. We both read it. We had a really good time and dove into it. Um, just to give you a taste if you haven't jumped over there already. We got more in the hopper. I'm not going to tell you. A friend, I, I recommended to a friend of mine who doesn't really listen to our book shows, but he's, he's an interested pop culture person. I said, check this out. Let me know what you think. He really liked it. And he said, but don't tell me what's next. I like the surprise of what's coming next. Mm. So I thought that was an interesting kind of a note. It'll be a mix of old and new, though I will say this. We're doing a few more new things than I had thought. Is that is that fair to your estimation, I think how you understood this? That is fair and true for my understanding of this project. And it's very much a byproduct of the fact that some of the new things right now are yeah. among the most awaited and anticipated adaptations that we've had in right. the last several years. It's a yes. it's a big, juicy time for adaptations. It's really good. And then we're going to look back at some stuff that have notable anniversaries coming up just to revisit as well. I've roped Rebecca into something that I've been wanting to rope her in for a long time, so you guys can look forward to that. But check that out in all your podcatchers. Uh, search for Adaptation Nation. I'll put a link there, uh, let's do a quick break, and then we're going to talk some fall sales stuff here before we get too much into the news stories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, I've been keeping an eye on our, really our collective picks for the fall Mm -hmm. preview draft, which also you've got a few more weeks to check that out. If you haven't already put a link in the show notes as well, bookriot.com slash fall draft. And you can still vote for it as well. Had a few votes come in uh, yesterday, actually all in a cluster, which was interesting. Um, let's look at some of the sales. So I'm just looking at this most, most recent publishers weekly hardcover front list fiction. So it doesn't have, um, aggregate sales for these titles, but I thought the relative sales were interesting. So the Lincoln highway is the real surprise to me on the draft. We kind of went tit for tat. You picked crossroads and I picked the Lincoln highway into this sort of like commercial fiction, white guy, you know, dad book, non John Grisham fiction category here, I guess Mm -hmm. that's how I'm defining it. And Crossroads last week was the 12th um, best-selling book, and it sold 6,500 copies. 
This week is the 15th best-selling hardcover fiction book. The Lincoln okay. Highway last week was three, and okay. this week it's three, and last week it sold 24,000 copies, which is a lot. That's more. I, I knew that um, Towles had a a fandom, like people know know him. I've read him. Um, a lot of people have Rules of Civility, Gentleman from Moscow, but that's more than I was expecting. That's number three, second week out. I was expecting that people are going to know it and it's going to kind of fade away. I haven't read it yet. It's sitting here on my uh, desk. And it's a big old uh, chunky boy, which I'm looking forward to getting to, but I got some other stuff to get to first. So I don't know if word of mouth has been good at all, but 24,000, I mean, that's that that's a lot. That's Nicholas it Sparks is. kind of yeah. numbers. His 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 new book sold about that same amount in its second week last week. Nicholas Sparks is still making new books is a thing that I just learned. Um that's that does seem higher than I would have anticipated. And I guess I'm not surprised that Lincoln Highway is above Franzen, because I think Lincoln Highway yeah. is more widely accessible and interesting, even though Jonathan Franzen is not inaccessible i think people perceive him to be inaccessible or right. harder like i think it's there's this idea baggage, yeah there's baggage yeah. we've got yeah. a lot of jonathan franz and baggage that's a that those books are harder to read or more intellectual or something mm. and i think that's just a halo effect of a lot of literary fiction that does that is performatively difficult for the sake of being difficult. Yes. Um, yes. Jonathan Franzen is not among those writers, but I understand how folks land there. I wonder, I think Amor Tolls is those are these are like perfect gifting books. And I wonder if there's something going on here mm. where I've the bookstores seem to be doing a really nice job of messaging about the supply chain and doing the like, buy your books now, mm. please, because we don't know if we'll be able to get them for you closer to the holidays or like if we sell out of them now, we don't know when we're going to get them back. And I wonder if there's a little of that happening. Like maybe some of these are copies that would have been purchased in early to mid-December, but that folks are purchasing now and holding on to for gifts. think it'll be interesting to watch the journey. What, what's the arc of Amor Tolls Yeah, here? the curve is interesting. I guess if we go down the list a little bit too, um, one that neither of us picked that maybe we should have, Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthidor, 17,500 copies. It's been out a few weeks, number six last week. Mm-hmm. Here's one that I wouldn't have guessed this, that the Towels is outselling the new uh, Leanne Moriarty by a factor of two, and they've both been out for a while. Oh, I wouldn't that's have guessed interesting. That. Wouldn't have guessed that. I Elizabeth think... Strout debuted. Mm-hmm. Her new book was new this week, O William, 12,000. That's about Strout. I mean, yep. mm-hmm. as reliable a literary fiction title that doesn't have a historical fiction or a real plot. I mean, she's a brand and people come up for the Strout. And uh, we have to remember that in six years or three years, whenever <laughs> she actually writes more often than every six years. Yeah. I shouldn't throw that kind of shade at her. For the Leanne Moriarty, I think those are... My perception of Leanne Moriarty is that there aren't people necessarily like waiting for release day for those books, mm. but that they have a very long tail because those yeah. are perfect airport books. Right. Um, you're going on a trip, you want to read a thriller, you pick up some Leanne Moriarty. Um, I guess while we're in the these people still publish books, they're now, I mean, again, no one's going to cry for Nicholas Sparks or John Grisham <laughs> for the number of books they sell. John Grisham's new book came out this week, his debut, uh, the first week on the list, 93,000 copies oh by gosh. itself called The Judge's List, which I'm surprised there's not already a John Grisham book called The Judge's List. But these are rep- these are review proof. It kind of doesn't matter if they're good. It doesn't Which is matter. a weird thing to say. It just doesn't matter. Um, and 
I yeah, I don't know the last time I've read a John Grisham novel. I, I can't think of the last new one that I read. I'm sure they're all kind of the same, and that's what people come for, and they're <laughs> yeah, comforting. I, but it is amazing that it's like, what must that feel like? Just you write a book, and it's going to sell a half million copies in print, kind of no matter what you do. Right. I think that's also, you know, James Patterson is there, Nora yeah. Roberts is there and it's you're no longer being judged against all the other books that are out you're just being judged against the rubric that people have of what's a good one of your books Mm -hmm. so like if a john grisham book does what you want a john grisham book to do if a david baldacci book does what you want a david baldacci book to do it becomes a good book by david baldacci and then you pick up the rest of them and that's a real rare space to enter where you don't have to care about reviews or even like attracting new readers necessarily Mm -hmm. the folks that are like you've got enough folks that have been in for long enough now and they are probably talking to their friends occasionally or somebody new is discovering david baldacci but that's a i mean that's a really interesting place to be as a writer especially somebody so commercial like john grisham or nicholas sparks those devoted fan bases that they want the thing you do and right. that's the metric of success there is did you deliver on the thing that people expected from your brand name? I mean, this is why someone writes like King writes under a pen name or did at right. one point just to kind of see to take take his old chops out for a spin rather than his name out for a spin. Mm-hmm. And selling books is hard. And it, 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 it is a kind of golden handcuffs to have such a big brand for a particular thing that you almost can't do anything to shed people's preconceived notions uh, of what you are and what you do. And maybe you don't want to, it's, you know, that's up to you. I didn't know this kind of book sold this, this amount, but Debbie Maycomer's new book, Dear Santa holiday book, 21,000. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. this, but I forget. I feel like holiday reading, especially like holiday titles and romance, commercial fiction, especially, has that really surged? I don't know if it's a post hoc ergo proctor hoc with the Lifetime movie, uh, whatever you want to call the holiday blitz we get of the very light romantic comedy slash dramas that um, appear by the thousands seemingly this time of year. <laughs> yeah, that are but already I, I don't remember seeing a hardcover frontlist fiction title that was holiday themed debuting in the top five. I don't remember seeing this. I could be wrong. I just don't remember seeing it. So I think you're right. I think that the hardcoverness of a title yep. like that is a relatively new phenomenon. And the the level of interest in it mm-hmm. is a relatively new phenomenon that I don't know if it has been, if it's a product of, you know, the Lifetime and Hallmark movies that are all over the place for the holidays, or if it's if both of them are a product of the times where we all want more comforting kinds of media um, and you can watch a Hallmark movie and you can pick up Debbie McCumber's new holiday book and the publishers got wise to the appeal of that and put it in hardcover (laughs) instead of in paperback. Mm -hmm. But she's in just enduringly popular, like from my bookseller days a decade ago, not a week went by that I didn't sell a bunch of Debbie McCumber books. Yeah. Also review proof in its own way, Mm -hmm. but just to have that specificity of um, early November Santa stuff, Harlem shuffle holding on. Now it's into the, Colson Whitehead territory that the long tail of Whitehead where it's going to sell five to 6,000 copies a week for the next quarter or so. It's number mm-hmm. 17 now down from 13. Those released at about the same time 
as the new Sally Rooney. It's now outselling Sally Rooney by a few thousand copies a week. So that's interesting to see there. She's going to fall off the top 20 next week. I've got a, a question for you in the nonfiction list. Okay. Um, the Storyteller by Dave Grohl, his memoir came out. Michelle was actually thinking she might be interested in it. We talked about it a little bit, so I was kind of filtering for it. Last week it was number one in hardcover nonfiction. This week it's three. Last week it sold 20,000 copies. Um, why does a Dave Grohl bother with this? Is it <laughs> My understanding is like a one show of the Foo Fighters makes way more than all of this would be. Do you just do this because you want your book out and you want your story out, which is fine. Yeah. But like, are you, wh- wh- why are you doing this? Why, is, why are Ron and Howard and Clint Howard the boys, which is number 10? That's old 12. I just, I mean, okay, maybe Clint Howard uh, hasn't, I haven't seen him in a movie that I remember since Apollo 13. But why are you doing this? For Dave Grohl, my best guess is he's a thoughtful and interesting guy and has an interesting story to tell and unpack. Mm. And maybe there's just like that human impulse to tell your story. But I read a, a couple of really great profiles of him this week. And I'm not particularly like a huge Foo Fighters fan. It was just these profiles like got surfaced by email newsletters that I read yes. that were like, hey, this is interesting. And I was like, oh, I might read a Dave Grohl memoir. That sounds no, interesting. No, he was doing the PR circuit. I saw all sorts yeah, of Grohl just, content over the last few I weeks. think this is also, it's the right time for a memoir by a rock star that appeals to the Gen X and elder millennial nostalgia. Who's and alive? Is, I mean, not to right. be macabre, <laughs> yeah, but seriously. Right. And has lived uh, alive and has lived through really meaningful moments of american music history was in nirvana <laughs> like mm-hmm. and it, that would if, if his career had started and ended with nirvana he would still have an interesting memoir to write but he's been doing so much yes. more since then i think if you're dave grohl and a publisher is like you can sell these like foo fighters fans are devoted is the thing that i do know from knowing a couple of them and having watched that culture and i know at least two independent bookstores I follow on Instagram sold out of their autographed copies of the Dave Grohl before the stores wow. even opened yesterday. Like they told their customers hmm. in an email, we've got these and people bought them. Um, so there's, no, I, believe, there. I believe that on the buy. I mean, it's the numbers are there. That's 20,000 for, I mean, that's a good seller for a celebrity memoir. Like we see celebrity me- memoirs all the time. They don't sell that well. Like the Stevie Van Zandt won't come out. It's not even selling close to that. Well, so I, I believe that, but in terms of like, the marginal value of Grohl's time, it must not be about his royalty statement. It must not be about oh, his yeah. He's doing it for it, some other reason. Yeah, I think at that point, I mean, I've never been in the position Dave Grohl's in, so I don't have this problem <laughs> of deciding. Yeah. But I think it might largely be about getting to tell your story and have control of it. He's been in mm. all kinds of paparazzi and media speculation for several decades now because of how high profile the bands that he's been in have been. And you know, he was in Nirvana when Kurt Cobain died. Like, There's all kinds of stuff. And people have told all kinds of stories. And there's all sorts of gossip around it in music circles that the appeal of like getting to go on the record with your version of things or set the record straight, you know, is I think must be very compelling. Like I, people think have been asking the same questions. Katie Couric has a new memoir out that she's right. she's telling all kinds of not truths. on the docket here, by the way, on the top. Yeah, she's telling all kinds of truths. Um, I've read some interesting interviews with her. She's being criticized for some of the things that she confesses to have done. Like she's not shining it on about herself there. And Katie Couric definitely didn't need the paycheck, but the appeal of 
getting to tell her version yeah. of things was I heard her on the Sway podcast with Kara Swisher and she basically said outright I wanted to tell my experience instead of letting other people talk about what they thought I did or what they saw me doing or how they felt about me. I mean, she also has the Lauer millstone around her neck. So I mm-hmm. think some clearing of the trying to get trying to get out in front of <laughs> or get on the permanent record what right. you weren't yeah. complicit in there. Um, I was just about to say, like, you know, it's weird because I never read celebrity memoirs. But here's the thing. I just read the Stanley Tucci, which is number 16. And I've got two on my radar. Mel Brooks's autobiography is coming out November 30th that mm-hmm. he's narrating on audio, which I will 1000% listen yes. to. Um, which I'm really looking forward to. And the news broke this week, I didn't put it here, that Paul Newman had, oh. it was discovered, Joanne Woodward's been dead for a while, and so has Paul Newman. Joanne mm-hmm. Woodward famously married to, they're, they're married to each other. But someone in Joanne Woodward's estate was going through her stuff, I guess, and found a nearly complete memoir by Paul Newman just sitting around. Hmm, and I so they're going to dust it off and publish it and come out in the spring. And I will certainly do that because Paul Newman is one of my favorite uh, actors of classic Hollywood and an all-around mensch, it sounds like, and a good uh-huh. storyteller um, from that era. So I, I, I caught myself saying, well, it's weird because I never read these, and yet I do if they interest me, and I guess that's the story uh, here yeah. for these kinds of things. Yeah, I think that is the story, that there's just a sector of fandom for each person that's like, I'm interested mm-hmm. enough to know that. Or I often find myself reading memoirs by people where I just think they're interesting, even if I'm not a huge fan of their work. Like I listened to Rob Lowe's memoir a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was like, yes, I did love the West Wing. And I loved him on Parks and Rec. But I haven't been you know, like a Rob Lowe fangirl since 1984 or something like that. <laughs> but I was like, yes, right. you're interesting. And I do want to hear your take there's I think there's a threshold of like are you a celebrity or are you an interesting person who's also famous and yeah. those folks write they those make for good books mm-hmm. yeah or if you've got a lot of details behind the scenes tea stuff that's what I like the best I'm not really the, I'm not really interested in like personal gossip like your love life or whatever that's oh yeah never been please, interesting to me. I don't care um, but I, I want I definitely want to hear how young Frankenstein was made uh, right. Mel Brooks memoir and stuff, <laughs> uh, stuff like that for sure. Let me see anything else interesting here. Mass market front list. Here we go. I wanted to tell you this. Uh, number one, the nineteenth Christmas. Number two, the perfect Christmas. Um, number six, Jingle All the Way. Number seven, Santa's Sweetheart. Uh, yeah, there you go. I just thought that was interesting. Uh, also, are these Dune, all romances? Dune movie tie-in. I was looking for this. The Dune movie tie-in, mass market front list. I guess. This is the one that has Chalamet and Zinde on the cover. Mm. Sold 3,000 copies last week. But I don't think that's the copy that's selling the most. That's not the one that I bought and returned to Pals because the format was so weird, which is the tour mm. um, mass market paperback. It's this really weird aspect ratio. It's it's taller and skinnier than your normal mass market front uh, paperback. Oh. And it's 900 pages. Yeah, and that's I had awkward. enormous hands, and I still couldn't figure out how to hold it. So I'm like, I don't know what this is going on. So I returned it to Pals and did it on ebook, which is more wieldy. But I wondered if this was moving any units. Because um, there's also a trade paperback of Dune and then a mass market paperback I mean, of Dune I'm seeing here. So there's, there's, it, we've got some um, format fragmentation. Yeah, and it probably depends on what's most available in the Amazon warehouse closest to yep. you at the time that you search for it on Amazon and Amazon right. recommends that format. <laughs> yeah. There's a graphic novel that my son was eyeing the other day at pals, which uh, is interesting as well. Makes for an interesting one there. Diary, a Christmas pig is the uh, number one children's front list fiction. Uh, there you go. 
Uh, just a lot of Christmas stuff. Um, oh, that's the new rolling. I didn't even realize that's what that was. Uh, huh. Anything else that's striking you? Yeah, no, that's, that's really it. Okay, uh, let's do another break, and we'll come back and talk about news. While we're bagging on um, holiday creep, I do want to remind you to send in your holiday recommendation <laughs> request, podcast at bookriot.com. We've got a handful in already, so there's still plenty of time uh, to get those in. Got some good ones already. Uh, I haven't shared those with you yet, Rebecca. I'll do that sooner Ooh, rather than yes. later. And Biggest news pro- of the week. Oh, go ahead. What else? I would say programming note before that. When our holiday recommendation shows come out, sort of conflicted with when I thought we were going to do The Sentence right. by Louise Erdrich. So we're bumping that up. So we will be airing an episode in which we spend some time talking about The Sentence on November 22nd. So if you want, the book just came out. So if you want to read along and listen along with us, you've got a couple weeks to join us on that. And then the fall uh, or the holiday recommend, recommendation request shows come out right around Thanksgiving. So you can stay tuned for all of that. In, I guess, news we were waiting to find out. I didn't know where we were in this story of PRH buying, trying to buy SNS, mm-hmm. how further we were down the regulatory road. I knew that we hadn't gotten the final signatures, what, that wasn't done, but I didn't know if it was a foregone conclusion or what. It turns out it was not because the department, Justice Department, has sued to prevent PRH from buying SNS. Let's not call it a merger. PRH is so much bigger. They're, they're, they're acquiring. Um, Simon and Schuster saying, the kinds of things we speculated about. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend of mine, interestingly, text me, say, hey, what do you think of this? Uh, is this good or bad or whatever? And I'll tell you what I told him, Rebecca, then you can tell me I'm wrong or give your spin on it. Um, I think if Amazon doesn't exist, I think I would be against this merger, this acquisition. But I think the real war being fought in books is not the retail, the, the publishers against each other in that market, it is everyone versus the big A. And mm-hmm. that consolidation is what's going on here, that a PRH is strengthening its position so that it has more protection and can negotiate, compete with, otherwise fend off the long arm of Amazon. And that scale helps there. It scales helps anyway here. But because Amazon says, I'm more worried about Amazon than I'm worried about PRH. And if this helps that fight, I think I'm okay with this. I prefer it not to happen, but I don't get what I prefer. And Amazon does exist. So that's, that's what I told him. Rebecca, how do, you, mm-hmm. how do you think about it? What do you think about that logic? That's about where I'm at on it as well. Um, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, gives a statement to the New York Times in this piece where he says um, that American authors and consumers will pay the price of this anti-competitive merger, lower advances for authors, and ultimately fewer books and less variety for consumers. And that's a valid concern and certainly something that the compression of the market gives us reason to worry about. But if that is the thing you're worried about, Amazon is the biggest Mm -hmm. threat. And I understand maybe reasons why the DOJ isn't like out there working on Amazon about this thing yet, but I would like to see that. I think that's the, if you're really concerned about protecting this industry and protecting authors and protecting readers, like the ultimately fewer books and less variety for customers, I kind of rolled my eyes at because there are already way more books than anybody. (laughs) That is a a tough one, right? Like you and I read a lot and we're not going to get to like 
Ten percent of the things we're normally interested in. No, and even the person that we know who reads the most books Mm -hmm. of anyone who reads five or six hundred books a year—that is still just a fraction of the the number of books that are published in a given year. It's not even all the good books that are published in a given year, and we know that a lot of books that are published each year are not particularly good. So I'm not worried about that part of it. I. I think readers are going to be just, we're going to plenty of material. Like we could stop publishing new books right now. And then I could spend the rest of my one wild and precious life still reading things that I had never gotten to before that were published before 2021. Mm -hmm. And there would, I could die 60 years from now and there would still be things I wanted to read that I hadn't gotten to yet. Like this is just the truth of it, that that's not really a problem. The lower advances for authors, the compression of the industry does that. But that's also we're talking about market forces here and what authors want to be able to be paid for writing versus what publishers are willing to pay them for all of the reasons that publishers for all the math that publishers have to do is a different kind of thing. Um, it, It also I think you could argue the opposite that if Penguin Random House is able to shore itself up against Amazon with Simon and Schuster, they might be in a position where they could charge less for some other things or they could pay less for some other things and then put more of their money towards authors. Um, It's not a I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that this merger results in authors getting lower advances, though I understand why it's something that agents and authors are worried about. I think my top line is I'd like to see the DOJ actually go after Amazon if I were if if like I got the priority If I got to set the priorities here, that's what I would do is go after Amazon. And then once you've solved that, look at what else is going on. Does Penguin Random House still care about acquiring Simon & Schuster if if there's some leveling action against Amazon? And if they do, then maybe you start looking at blocking that sale and and justifying it. But I'm... I'm glad to see the Biden administration taking some action on these kinds of things. This is not the place I would have started in publishing. I think that's that's a great point. I think I would like to have both. I'd like to have some inquiry into Amazon, especially it relates to book retailing. And that's a that's a hairy mess, especially on the print side, because it's Amazon, Amazon. You know, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about, Okay, say you were going to break up Amazon in some way, at least as it it relates to books. Like, what would you do? I think what I would do and the point I made to my friend over text was like, here's the thing, you know, PRH sells like 60-ish percent. It's going to be more than that with Simon Mm -hmm. Sister of trade. But when you look at format, the real place Amazon has stranglehold is eBooks and audio, right? They're like 90% of eBooks and audiobooks. I think if I were the DOJ, I'd really look at Audible. Could Mm -hmm. you split off Audible into it and say, you know, break it up? Maybe you could break up Kindle too. And say, okay, Amazon, you can sell print books. You can be a wholesaler just like everybody else, but you don't get to have the number one ebook and mm-hmm. audiobook platform. You can't use the network effects to be have anti-competitive pricing um, around Kindle Unlimited for something like that, or your yep. advertising. Or like, I don't actually know what the pieces that are anti-competitive. But in terms of retail audiobooks, Amazon has as much market share as anything that's ever been broken up, as far as I know. U.S. Steel, you can go down the line. Ma Bell, maybe not Ma Bell. Phones are different because everyone <laughs> has to be on the same network for that work, or it used to be that way. But Audible is the, the beast there and has more of a market share anywhere else, and it's high margin, uh, and it's growing very fast. And I think it would be possible to break off, just like some people thought about if you wanted to break up Facebook, you could right. you could chunk off Instagram relatively straightforwardly, Right it'd be fairly straightforward to chunk that off into its own business. So 
you're not, you don't want to be in a position there to disincentivize commerce or really go after business. Business is a good thing. We run one here. We like business. That's fine. But what can you do to preserve people's experiences, but also give the marketplace a crack at it? Because such is mm -hmm. the nature of a certain kind of capitalism where people compete and compete and compete. It's kind of like when Federer was as good at tennis as anyone's ever been. And it was like him and um, Nadal. Well, if you're the best, you're going to beat everybody else. Is that good for everybody else? No. Um, so what can you do to make it a little more interesting? We've seen some other players, the Libro FMs, Audible, uh, Audible, uh, audiobooks.com. Apple's tried to get into it. There's other places to do it, but Audible succeeds because people go to Amazon it's, to buy books and there's right, right there, sign up for a subscription and right there. So it, it, it's, it reminds me of the Internet Explorer Microsoft days, right? Of like, mm -hmm. well, you had an unfair advantage because people were buying, you know, using Windows. And so they're looking for the tools that are pre-built, but there's a business around the, the browser. And so you have an unfair advantage. You can't, people aren't competing on the browser. So can we split that out? It's hard. It's very difficult. But I, I think for most of us, we realize that Simon & Schuster becoming a part of PRH is not going to change the landscape that we understand in a meaningful way. Maybe on the margins there'll be a book here or there that gets a different kind of advance because there's not as many bidders. But here's the thing. If you're worried about your advance, it means you know your book's not going to earn out. Because mm -hmm. if you thought your book was going to earn out, you'd be like, well, I'll just take the royalties on the back end. But most books don't. So what are we really worried about? That's market force, as you were saying before. So I think from right now, if I had to bet $100, well, you, you lead. If you had to bet $100 <laughs> if this actually happens... Do you think this happens or not from where you from where you sit right now? Do I think it happens that it gets broken up or do I think the, the, it happens the prevent, that it goes They through? prevent the merger from happening. Oh. The, the Justice Department wins. I think there's a 30% chance the Justice Department wins. So you so you bet a dollar you bet 100 on status quo. Things will proceed. Yep. I I'm going I think they're going to stop it. I really hmm. feel like they're going to stop it. I think okay. so. I think it's a great point you were making about audiobooks and I just coincidentally learned this week that just because you have an audible not just because you have an Amazon account that you can access audible books through doesn't mean you have an audible account oh like, no oh so, Rebecca my sweet summer child okay I tell know me well, about how you yeah okay so, so I discovered it because a friend who works at audible was offering to send a gift to somebody that I work with and they were like just tell me have them tell me their audible the email address that they use for audible and the person was like oh it's just my Amazon the same email address I use for Amazon so I passed it over and the friend at Audible said, hey, there's no Audible account under this. And I was like, well, it's there. I had, you know, there was lots of back and forth. Mm -hmm. And so the, the person who was supposed to be the recipient of this gift was like, oh, right. It's because I've never actually set up an Audible account. But I just assumed that my Amazon sign in would work. And that really got me thinking about these elements as well. Like they, those pieces do function separately, but you have the pass through of yes. Audible to Amazon, where if you're searching for a title on Amazon, you can buy it from Audible right there. And if you click to buy it, you're going to get some sort of prompt of like, do you want to pay the dollars for this? Or do you mm -hmm. want to get a subscription to Audible? And if you removed that piece and you added some friction in, the sales price of these books is about the same at Libro and at audiobooks.com yep. as it is at audible and the subscriptions are all about the same price point so then it would become about where do you want to buy your books not just what's easier because you're already in this ecosystem and we can advertise to you because you're right here so if they did chunk off pieces of amazon that audio component especially like it, it's easy to do because they're already not integrated no so i've been buying my audiobooks um through apple 
for a couple mm. of reasons. One, I think the pricing is pretty good without a prescri- uh, prescription subscription. It does feel like a drug to be on the Audible subscription plan to some degree. And it's right there on my phone. You can just do it, keep a track. It syncs to all of my devices. It's super easy to do. Lincoln Highway. I was, I can't remember why I was looking this up, but the 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 street price listed on Amazon for the Audible version, full freight. You're not getting any discounts. You don't have an Audible Plus premium membership, whatever. $33 retail price. That's what it says. And it strikes through and says $14.95 with an Audible uh-huh. subscription. To buy it outright, to buy the same audiobook outright on Apple is $17. No mm-hmm. monkey business. So that pricing placement, I think, is part of the Amazon monster, right? Mm-hmm. You get to put whatever. Okay, I'm sure their agreement says that the sticker price is $31. No one, ain't no one paying that, right? right? Everyone else is paying something like So there's this false pricing deal that you're getting, and you'll only get the $14.95 if you sign up for the thing forever. And you can only use your credits if you keep your thing going. Like, it's all... I've I've ranted about before, even apart from the Audible Amazon integration, Audible's subscription thing is a super big turnoff, and I hate it, mm-hmm. right? I just hate that thing, and I think they're too big to monkey around with that stuff, and I think that is bad for consumers on the whole. 17 bucks, audiobook right there, Apple. Okay, Apple's another trillion-dollar company, but like it's not putting independent bookstores out of business, if you hear right. what I'm saying. The whole thing is a mess, but it makes me wonder, we'll segue into our next story, the pricing of audiobooks, right? Because my audiobook is $16.99. My ebook that I can buy on Apple is $12.99. So I'm paying a $4 premium for the audiobook. Presumably, I guess the business model is you're getting an extra service, which is someone reading you the book. What if that was um, your laptop? Uh, AI coming to audiobooks. This is something we've seen. Voice recognition and then voice synthesis is getting really interesting. You've heard about deepfakes mm-hmm. and some other things, especially, I'm sure, at this point. This is a piece in Publishers Weekly. Not all books get audiobooks because it is more expensive to do. You, there, is a, there is a cost on I'd love to know how much is it. I know much. I still, if anyone knows how much Rosario Dawson got paid to narrate Artemis <laughs> by Andy Weir, please email me, podcastofbookwrite.com. <laughs> I will shout you out publicly or privately, whatever you else want to do. But... The brand name talent, it says here, I hadn't seen this before, and I don't know what brand name talent means. I don't think that's Rosario Dawson. I think that's professional audiobook narrators. $1,000 or more per finished hour of the audiobook. So it doesn't take them that long to do it. That's just what, you know, if, my boy, I bet my Lincoln Highway book is a million hours long. Let me just take a look here real quick. Uh, it looks like it is, oh my God, I lost it all of a sudden. Um, anyway, the book I'm listening to right now is a book about skateboarding, a memoir, never mind, doesn't matter. It's nine hours long. So that would mean that the audiobook publisher presumably paid $9,000 for the audio narrator to get the whole thing packaged up. Does that seem to be a drop in the bucket for publishing a book, Rebecca? Is that a $4 premium tacked on for my audiobook experience? I feel, I feel something about that. I feel some kind of way about that. Talk me through that. I also thought that that seemed low especially because you're talking about per finished hour and -hmm. presumably there's much more time in the studio reading these things and i don't know like doing multiple takes or whatever audiobooks have producers that are in there with the talent most of the time Um, to land at those nine finished hours it's you know takes more than nine hours of work but in the big like pnl of acquiring and publishing a book or an audiobook yeah, like nine grand just doesn't seem like a lot, but mm-hmm. 
I don't I don't know because we also have never seen any other number. We've never seen any other number. And it says it takes about two hours of labor to produce one um, finished hour. So basically $500 an hour for labor, which is nice work if you can get it. Yeah. Um, so the idea here is if you could do that through AI, obviously it would be a lot cheaper. Um, and there's some quotes here from, let, let's call them motivated reasoners about <laughs> the, the future of how good this is going to go. But saying basically in two years, right now they say with the current things that are available, about 95% of listeners couldn't tell it's AI. Who are these 5% that can tell? I'd love to know this. Am I one of the 5%? But they say in a couple years, it's going to be basically and the, indistinguishable. Um, yeah. From are these the 5% human. of people who are listening to things at like 2x speed? So most intonation is gone at that point because right. it's going so fast. Like there is a note here that narrative nonfiction, because it has steady cadences, is best for um, for mm. use of AI things. And so that that's my guess there, that if you... If you can tell there's something else, maybe there's something else going on or you're just a great listener. Um, I, I really want someone to just open the books about the cost of audio production because my assumption pre-digital audiobooks is this stuff is expensive because like producing CDs and prior to that producing cassette tapes is expensive. Mm. And the cost of like producing a hardcover book is much higher than the cost of producing an ebook. And so ebooks cost less and publishers still earn margin on them. Mm. And my assumption was, all right, the same thing should hold for audio. That producing an MP3 file for an audiobook should cost less than producing like a set of 10 CDs for the same thing would. And so pricing should come down, but audiobooks have stayed expensive. And I don't know why. I would really like to know why, but no one has ever talked about what where the internal costs are in a place that we've seen until this. And the and the only real cost that we're getting is this five hundred dollars an hour for functionally like production and editing, and then a thousand dollars per finished hour for the talent. But if you're selling, first of all, if the book is popular enough to get an audio adaptation in the first yes. place, and then you're selling a lot of them, you're going to offset that what. 15 or 20 grand total relatively quickly. Mm. Yeah, you don't <laughs> so, have to sell you sell 2500 audiobooks right. to make at 4 grand premium to get to 10 grand. So you can yeah, get there I'd, pretty quick. Another I interesting have a use lot case of questions. here is they talk about and and I know y'all out there have seen this especially in the backlist space where there most new books though not all for sure especially in the academic markets and specialty markets there aren't audiobooks. So this makes it feasible for things where it wouldn't pencil out, right? You're going to spell, send 200, sell 200, 1,000 copies total. For accessibility reasons alone, it might be nice to have audiobooks. This is saying mm -hmm. that for deep backlist too, where you want to have something available for someone searching it, but you're not really doing the, it's not a front list title where a good audiobook experience might help its virality and word of mouth, like to really move it up the audio or some of the kind of seller list. Because you can imagine if we, you know, some of the audiobooks that we really liked, if Stanley Tucci's not doing Stanley Tucci, we're not talking about Stanley Tucci audiobook, I don't think. That, I'm yeah, no. I mean, there's some things, there's a difference to it. Also, probably Stanley Tucci's getting more than 500 bucks an hour, I guess, or however that's arranged. But if you're going to, like, you're looking at a novel from like 1974 or, you know, a, or a book about surfing, I was looking at the other day and I was like, oh, that'd be interesting on audio. There's no audio book for it. 500 bucks, someone like Pierre H., Simon Schuster, mm -hmm. Hachette could say, here's a thousand, go do them, whatever one of these consortium places, and you can start building it, building it. It's not going to pay for itself right then. But you make it available to libraries. It's yeah. there on a standing basis. It becomes part of a deeper and deeper backlist. That part makes the most sense to me. Um, I'm one of those people where a narrator 
can be make or break on the preview. I don't care that much. There are certain kinds of deliveries I don't really care for for whatever reason. So I do usually preview the audiobook first. But I'd say my bar is relatively low on 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 audiobook performances. I'm guessing I would be amongst the 95% that kind of can't tell. Mm-hmm. And that's a bummer probably for audiobook narrators. Um, and I would love to believe they pass some of the savings along to Joe Schmo like me, where I could pay equivalent for the ebook versus the audiobook. It would seem reasonable if you're having a computer do it that it, there's no reason it should be more. Than the than the ebook, I doubt Rebecca. You and I will realize the cost savings yeah. that will be that will be realized <laughs> I mean, that, by having uh, Hal um, five thousand read uh, the Grapes of Wrath to us. Well, that just made me wonder if Hal five thousand reads the Grapes of Wrath to us. Is that what's listed as the narrator when you go to buy or download the audiobook? Does the publisher yeah. admit it that this is AI narrated? Some of these companies, and there's a whole list here. I do recommend this article in Publishers Weekly, and it's written by um, Thad McElroy. Some of them, you and there, there's a bunch of different business models, but one is that they're, they have narration based on a particular audiobook narrator. So they've done machine learning on that person's voice, right? Mm-hmm. I'm assuming this must yeah. be copyrightable. But so you can get a human voice that the is being replicated. So maybe, you know. Hmm. It's interesting. Maybe. It's like a, how you can set way, like your Waze app to have like the rock tell you directions to wherever you That's go. what I'm thinking. Eventually, it's going to yeah. be pick which narrator you want for this audiobook, mm-hmm. and all of mine will be James Earl Jones. Um, so I hope someone's <laughs> Just, collecting I mean, the James Earl Jones files. <laughs> if you can have James Earl Jones do it, why do you pick anybody yeah. else ever? That, that would be really cool. <laughs> um, I think... It's interesting. They say nonfiction is a low-hanging fruit. I think any mm-hmm. if you're the kind of person that likes a little bit performance in your fiction dialogue, it's going to be a long time coming. I, I don't particularly so. care for that. I think it's a coin flip about one someone trying to perform the voices differently actually add or detract in my experience of, of fiction. But um, that's neither here nor there. Okay, one more sponsor and do a couple of news items at the end. The most prestigious single-title literary award in the English-speaking world. It's a low bar, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> the 2021 Booker Prize was awarded today, no, yesterday, to an author I had heard of but never read a book by, though it sounds like I should, Damon Gaugut, South African writer for his book, The Promise. He was shortlisted in 2003 and 2010. He writes a book about every seven years, so okay. that's a pretty good hit rate for uh, Mr. Uh, mm-hmm. Gaugut there. Um, a book about a white family's wrestling with their waning power among apartheid as, as that's happening. Uh, the long list, let's see, did we talk about the long list? Oh, we saw Bewilderment, Powers, Great Circle, mm-hmm. Shipstead. Uh, no one is talking about this, Lockwood. Uh, and then The Promise in the Passage North, which I don't have the authors on top of my head there. Um, I've never read this. You you know anything about uh, some this fellow called Damon? I don't know anything about this, and I had missed this announcement. Um yeah. My, this is, I know just last week I said, I'm not going to get on the train of how come you didn't nominate this thing, but Clara and the Sun was on the long list, and why wasn't it on the short list? Like, in a year when Ishiguru publishes a new book, why do we have short lists of anybody else? It's like, um, you know, in sports where you're the number one overall seed, you get a, you get a buy. It doesn't yeah. feel like a good Ishiguru should get a buy. Just kind of move on. I, it, I, it should. I'm sure that this is a good book. No knocks on Damon Galgut. Um, yeah. The Booker is one that 
Even when you were saying the most prestigious award, my eyebrows kind of went up. And maybe that's true. And I just don't care about prestige at this point in my reading life. Because this is just not one that I pay much attention to in terms of it won't dictate any of my reading. Um, So I I like it because sometimes, I mean, you get from the Commonwealth, you get South Africa, you get Australia, you get New Zealand, you can get some other places too. Nigeria, how this goes. This was wild though. So I was looking around the book, uh, the Booker, um, I have nothing to say about the book, so I'm moving on to the meta discourse. <laughs> Got it. The, the Booker produced short films for each of the short list titles, and you can and they're very highly produced. How? Why they're doing this? Why this matters? Uh, I don't understand. <laughs> How don't, many views did they get? <laughs> oh, I mean, this. What is the purpose of this? I mean, they look fantastic, but. Um, to reinforce its own level of prestige. I guess so. I guess so. Uh, let's see. What were the others? Yeah, Richard Powerships did. Um, Nadifa Mohammed for Fortunate Men was shortlisted. Passage North by Anuk, Adru Pragmagaz, and then uh, the last one. Oh, I mentioned Bill Bewilderment. Mm-hmm. I got. Uh, I did. I didn't mention this to you, and I didn't forward it to you because it, it wasn't really germane amongst all the email we get, but someone really came off the top rope standing for bewilderment by Richard Powers <laughs> saying they hated one of the, the echo maker. One of the, er, the earlier ones is like this one I loved. I'm like, okay. okay, I hear you. You know, I heard him on the Ezra Klein show, like the week after I did my Richard Powers was pandering to me and I'm yes. over it speech. And he might've won me over a little oh. bit. I'm not rushing out to pick up bewilderment, but I might get to it eventually. We'll okay. see. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Anyway, I just thought I would pass that along. Thank you to emailing this reader um, I think whose name I cannot remember. If I'm going to stand for anybody else on the short list, I wanted more love for Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle this year. And I do think if it had been 300 pages shorter, it would have gotten it. I agree with you. And it matters, though. I have to say, yep, if it's it 300 does. pages, it does. 300 pages does. You know, it if does. it was just like, circle, I, it would have been better. I, yeah, I enjoyed all 600 pages of it, but you're going to, you have a tougher row to hoe with 600 pages than with 300 for sure. Last note here. We're not going to dwell on this too long. Um, but it was, I I definitely wanted to mention that the banning wars have now really come up the prestige chart. In fact, we're coming for the King, the queen, I should say at this point, Mm -hmm. um, highlighted in the Virginia's governor's race, uh, pour one out for you and uh, Amanda while we mentioned (sighs) this, um, that Glenn Youngkin made it a part of his campaign to highlight a woman who tried to ban Beloved from her son's school eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's just a lot of there's a lot of interesting things here. There's also been an effort made recently in Texas to get at Beloved to come for Beloved. Um, and I guess there's a couple of things. One is. I actually have an interest, or I, I have a thought that's beyond this is bad about Beloved. I'm not sure if I'm teaching Morrison to high schoolers, I'm going to start with Beloved. We've even said it ourselves. We We've start with talked Beloved. about that. Yeah. I think that's Which is a, okay. Yeah. That's a different question. Is the Beloved the right way to go? I think we could have an interesting debate about what you're trying to do with Beloved at that age. Like we even talked to Cree Miles, right, about mm-hmm. Beloved too early. It's it's a lot. It is a lot. But you're not going to hurt anybody's feelings. And even if you did, that's okay. Are they going to understand? Are they going to get anything out of it that they couldn't get out of something more approachable? That's a different thing. But we're to the point now where Nobel Prize winning authors of 
irreproachable artistic integrity, pedigree, and import are now on the docket. And we've talked about this a lot over time, but we're at an apex for this stuff. It, it, you can't get any bigger than this. I guess what this I'm saying, is, there is no, you, there's nothing else yeah. to come for after this. Like, it, one of the many complicated and disgusting features of this particular story is that the this family, the son who was the high school student at the time in 2013 is now a conservative elected official in his own right. They're like deeply connected to all sorts of things. And yeah, and Youngkin trotted out. This mother didn't want her son to have to read Beloved and the school wouldn't let her opt out for something else. And parents should have more choices in their kids' education. And that was very effective. Um, you know, my like the entire news cycle in Virginia for the last month has been what's going to happen in the governor's election. And so, of mm-hmm. course, this week, it's it's the postmortem of what happened. And the buzzword, the whole critical race theory buzzword came up, but Youngkin's campaign was largely about education. He didn't, he did not talk directly about critical race theory, really. He talked about education and he swung a lot of voters, especially white women in the suburbs without college degrees who voted for Biden because they were offended by Trump. Trump was like too far over the line, but mm. they were willing to go back to a Republican who seemed less offensive than a swallowable Trump. Republican pill because for lack of a right term. because of this rhetoric around education for your children and are your children safe in school and this is very coded for are your children safe from the liberals who want to teach them about race and want to tell them that white people do bad things in this country and it is I mean I'm two days out from processing this news and it's still like very fresh but it is deeply troubling to live in the capital of the confederacy in the state that is the first place that enslaved people came or were brought to the first place that enslaved people encountered when they were brought here from Africa it's like not that far from where I'm sitting right now and we have an incoming governor who was elected on a platform of parents getting input about their kids education where the input that those parents want to have is don't teach them about white supremacy. Don't teach them about some of the history. Like we really could end up with a history curriculum in Virginia that doesn't let teachers talk about the history of slavery that happened here. Like 10 miles from my door is a farmer's market that hap- that exists in a spot that was a slave market 300 years ago. And the fact that this is still scary to white people in the suburbs is something that we need to really reckon with. It's something that the Democrats need to do a better job talking about directly and marketing around as well. And then Terry McAuliffe had a very unfortunate moment in a debate where he said, I don't think that parents should really get a say in what happens in schools. And the Youngkin campaign glommed onto that and put it everywhere and terrified these parents who aren't super plugged into the policy or who who I'm positive. I told you yesterday, like I will eat my shorts if any of these people could actually define critical race theory, but they're being told that this is what their kids are going to be taught. That if you elect the Democrats, your kids are going to be taught that white people are bad, that this country is racist, that they're bad because they're white, protect your children, protect your children from these messages. And all of that spun up into these coordinated efforts to ban books that the books have not been successfully banned, but it kicked up the kind of conversation that these folks mm-hmm. needed to win an election, and it worked. And yep. 
that tells us something about the fears that people still have about the inherently racist beliefs that many people still hold and that they will vote based on those inherently racist beliefs as long as you don't tell them that they're inherently racist and we've got to do something about (laughs) we just have to do something about this i'm like i this is i'm just this ball of rage and fear right now for how do we do a better job having these conversations in a way that is accessible to people that can help them think critically about the history of this country and about the ways that they may benefit from it, or at least the ways that they're not threatened by it when Mm -hmm. folks of color are and make that something that is a strength of a, you don't even have to be a card carrying Democrat of a liberal or progressive ticket. Um, Because right now the other side is like they're coordinated and they are scared. And that fear is an excellent motivator. And it got people out to the polls in Virginia. And frankly, banning Beloved or trying to is a natural extension of a certain worldview that they're implicitly expressing espousing, which is Mm -hmm. eh, we really shouldn't dwell, I guess, or Mm -hmm. acknowledge what's gone wrong. And if that's your prior, if that's your assumption, you can build a logical chain that gets very quickly to we shouldn't be requiring Beloved in schools. It it, it makes Mm -hmm. logical sense if you have these um, racist assumptions or denial, whatever you want to call it. With those assumptions... The logical extension of that is to try to ban Toni Morrison, but I yeah. think that should make it plainer to people that this is not as simple as, and, and you're alluding to this or, or saying it outright, it's not as simple as saying we've got to topple white supremacy and everyone's going to understand what that means and be okay with it or be, you know, the, the old ideas. There was a time, and I don't remember when this was, and maybe this was never a time that was real, but in my life where people didn't people really didn't want to be racist and even to be thought to be racist was super, super bad. And we've kind of gone on the other side of that, not to say that people are okay with being racist. They're denying that racism is real. And that's right. the, through the looking glass moment we've derived at. And I don't think as you're, you're kind of talking around this, those of us on the left haven't really reckoned with that. Right. And mm-hmm. what that means politically uh, and in the real politic of getting people elected to offices that matter. Um, because if we're at a point where a elected governor of a purple state can get behind the idea of banning beloved, we're in a different place than we thought we were, or at least I thought we were even two mm-hmm. years ago, um, to some degree. So we don't have the answers here, but we want to put it out there. Um, choose email podcast at bookwright.com for thoughts, notes, holiday recommendation, uh, Request also interesting. Um, after you get the Adaptation Nation feed uh, episode in your feed, and you've listened to it, or you've listened to it over there. Uh, if you've got ideas, feedback for that, we will make that a good show that people like um, more than just it is fun. Though fun is fun is an end in itself. Uh, but we got a business to run here, Rebecca. Uh, so anyway, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much. Have a good one. 